When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Smoothie King's new lemonade lineup is here. Lemonade, lemonade, the Smoothie King way. Try a strawberry guava lemonade SK refresher. Over ice. A power up in a cup. Energize. Or a blueberry lemonade smoothie. Blend it up in your cup. Made with real fruit, real juice, for a real sipping good summer. Yum, yum, gotta get some. Smoothie King's new lemonade lineup, all for a limited time. Who's thirsty? Hello. We are back with the Love Tennis pod. Very sad news, of course, this week for us uh, recreational players. We have lost um, the right to play in the UK, which is obviously very, very disappointing. Uh, hello, both James and Calvin are here now. I was just uh, lamenting the loss of recreational tennis here since we lost. Oh, you're on the, oh no, why is my specific hobby banned from lockdown thing? Absolutely. I actually did go out and uh, play today. Not uh, that's not legal, is it? Well, actually, it, it is legal. I didn't play on a court or over a net. I went out to do my recreational exercise and just hit volley to volley with a person socially distanced. That is perfectly legal. That's so I, legal. it is, and you'll see the LTA actually promoting people doing similar today. Um, they some people are playing in a car park over some uh, like leaves in a car park, which is serving as a net. Kind of a hedge can you just rather. can you just explain to me how that's legal? Well, because they all they've done is closed tennis courts and stuff, but you're allowed to go out and exercise socially distanced with other people. So it, you, you can actually play tennis over certain things um, perfectly okay. legally. So I, I played volley to volley. So that that's, that that might be my admission of guilt that gets me arrested tomorrow. But hopefully, um, can we actually? <laughs> Can we spin off this? I've got an I've got a point that I think both of you will have lots to say on. Um, I saw someone tweeting, um, you know, with with actually the video you were talking about, somebody playing over a hedge, and saying that oh well, this wouldn't be such a problem if um, England had more hitting walls, which they have lots of in other tennis playing countries. Which I assume is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's a wall with a net painted on it that you can whack tennis balls at. Um, I mean, that's all well and good, and maybe you would get more people playing tennis. I don't know, but. It strikes me that there are a hell of a lot of basketball hoops and basketball courts in this country, and we're pretty crap at that. So I don't know whether it would make much of a difference. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, lot- there's, there's, there's plenty of walls. 
<laughs> don't really know how tennis. They don't really think you need a specific wall to go on. I mean, just going back to what what uh, George was saying there about how the LTA he'd seen on the LTA uh, site that it was legal. Something that should be made illegal is the LTA social media, <laughs> uh, which, which is an absolute abomination. But, um, wow! But, <laughs> there we go. I'm coming off the long run up there. I guess that's, yeah. that's, that's the big early take. I was going to say. Um, Quite a few of the uh, Eastern European players, particularly, like I think Navratilova um, and even Novak and Bjorn Borg, that's not really Eastern European, but anyway, a lot of them said they kind of started up against like a garage door or something or against the wall. So it is, it's quite common for young kids. Um, but you do get a lot of those walls actually in tennis clubs, which are now closed anyway. So mm. that's... Uh, that's how I, that's definitely how I learned to play. Like I used to live next to a really big school. And they didn't, you know, at the weekends, the grounds were basically open. And at the end of a massive building, there was an enormous ward. It was great. We used to play sets and sets against Anthony Wall, my best friend. Maybe <laughs> it says a lot about how lonely I was as a kid. Anyway, I mean, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of walls in clubs, hitching walls with targets and that kind of thing on it. And I, I don't see many people ever on them. No, it should be a more um, organic thing, shouldn't it, really? Where it's a kid in their back garden or like in a, if, if they've got a wall somewhere nearby yeah. going to do it. Yeah. But yeah. I don't really see the point of having them at clubs that much. Oh, there you go. Um, I thought we'd spin off something that Matt Rackett was saying on Twitter. So thanks for your talking point, Matt. Um, <laughs> let's move on to big boys tennis. Um, Daniil Medvedev won possibly what well, I think is both my favourite but also the strangest trophy in tennis, which is the <laughs> Paris Masters trophy, which I don't even know how to describe it. but I, A it, twig. It, yeah, if anyone's watching his dark materials at the moment, which I'm not, but I have read the books. The what Philip is it? Pull- the Philip Pullman series, okay. based on um, Northern Lights. Right. The, witch- the witches in that use sort of branches for power and weaponry. And it's what I imagine they look like. I haven't seen the TV series, so maybe they've pictured them in a different way. But it- it's an, uh, an extraordinary trophy. I think it's my favourite, actually. Um, but, you know, aside from that, he also gets a thousand shiny ATP points. Although probably less because he would have played it last year, and I don't understand the new ranking system. Um, but he did beat Alexander Zverev uh, in three sets, coming from seven-five down, which is always more impressive in a final. Um, George, how how big a win is that for for a guy who had a very strong 2019, I suppose, and then a bit of a dip, and then to come back and also to win indoors. You know, he's obviously been better outdoors. Yeah, I think uh, it's obviously a great time to get a win. Um, I was just trying to think of what my favourite trophy is. I think it's Madrid that's the weirdest one, actually. That's What's kind that? of like, it's a giant, like, almost like a police baton with like a few little gold things around it. It's quite <laughs> weird. <laughs> that's a yeah. really bad description. But if you if you Google it, you, you might be able to come up with a better well, maybe description. Maybe you have to do a little poll on Twitter, at Love Tennis Pod on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you can have a look and you can vote for your favourite one. And we'll make Calvin, if you had to pick a favourite trophy, obviously you've had your hands on lots in your career, but what, what would your favourite <laughs> be? Um, the Paris one is nice, isn't it? It's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, really there's, there's, yeah, I mean, there's the Davis Cup one that's just massive. Like uh, six yeah, foot that's tall. Um, yeah, you're a pure size queen, I think, the Davis Cup yeah. one. But, yeah, I, 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 no, I think the Paris one is good. Oh, I mean, no, I'd say probably, I mean, I don't know where they still do it, but the older. I think they got rid of it. The, the diamond-encrusted racket in Antwerp was a bit tasty Ooh, as well. Yeah. 
I, I hasten to add, I wasn't saying uh, Madrid's my favourite. I think that's the worst one, but it's kind of the weirdest. Right, okay. the, sure. my, I think my favourite trophy ceremony slash trophy like ritual is definitely Acapulco, though. That's where they make them put on a giant sombrero and get a trophy <laughs> that's a big silver pair. That's that is definitely <laughs> the best one. Like, hands but, down. Be, better than the uh, better than the Aussie Open, where the Kia guy talks for forty-five <laughs> minutes. But yeah, well, I I just think in terms of the pictures you get from that, like I think there was a there's one where Sam Query beat Nadal the other year. The picture set for yeah. that is really fabulous, and Kyrgios has won it. It's just great seeing all these players in giant sombreros. I think that really adds something. Um, yeah, yeah. But back to Medvedev, because he yeah. wasn't wearing a sombrero this week, um, but he very was playing, playing very, very well. Um, yeah, I, I think it was obviously a very encouraging week for him. I, I think it's like it's really hard for some players to kind of say they've had a really good or a really bad year. I'd say Medvedev has had an OK year. You know, he lost to Vavrinka in five in the Australian Open, I think, maybe like fourth round where Stan played really well. Uh, he lost a team in the semi-finals of the US Open. You know, they're the tournaments I'd expect him to kind of go deep. And he's lost to good opponents who played pretty well there. And it wasn't like he was blown away in either match. So, you know, he you wouldn't say it was a complete disaster from his perspective from that point of view. Um, but he's, he hadn't reached the final of a tournament until this week. And obviously he hadn't won a title because you can't win a title unless you've been in a final. Um, so yeah, that, that's a good way to end. But I think, yeah, what you kind of touched on there about him being an indoors player, you know, me and Calvin have spoken about this before, like he's really, really solid outdoor, slow, hardcore player. And if we're talking about the next gen and where we think they can win titles, it's sometimes not clear, but to me, the Medvedev at the US Open has seemed like one of the clearest transition games, um, for like a Grand Slam where someone would win. But he's not mm. quite done it indoors, even though he, he did win the Shanghai Masters, which I know is outdoors, but plays a bit quicker. Um, so he's won that before, but he, he's not really done it indoors that much. Um, and I thought he was really excellent this week. So I, I think that's a really encouraging sign and good timing ahead of the ATP finals where he didn't win a match last year. Um, um, so we'll see where it goes. George, I'm going to give you a second to try and fix your microphone because I think it's rubbing on the lapel of your rather natty US Open fleece. Um, Calvin, Daniil Medvedev looks like he's, he's got an indoor game now as well as an outdoor game. Was he one of those players you looked at and thought, yes, he will be a good indoor hardcore player as well? Or, or is there something he's maybe had to change a little bit? Um, I mean, the only thing that I would have concerns about on the quicker indoors is that he has quite big swings. Um, and I thought they could potentially cause him problems. I don't know the speed of the court in Paris, so I don't know if that had a huge effect on it. Um, but he's always one of those players who is, is obviously his level is high, and he's going to bring what he brings. Um, he's going to bring the same thing most matches, and the players are going to have to beat him. He's rarely going to beat himself. You're going to have to play a pretty good match to beat him. I watched the final yesterday. Um, that's where I've played pretty well, I thought, um, for the first... Well, so first set and a half. I, I always find it strange, though, with Medvedev, this idea that, and I was talking to a tennis coach friend of mine while it was going on yesterday by text, that we we're both saying the same thing, that the, the commentators always tend to talk about this, this brilliant tennis IQ that Medvedev has. Um, and he said to me, where does this come from? And I think it's because he's obviously a very intelligent person. I think he's, he's, he's apparently a very good chess player, isn't he? And I think he may have a math degree, somebody told me. 
Okay. I don't know if that's right. But his tennis, I don't get why they keep saying that, because his tennis is pretty one-dimensional, and he doesn't really solve any problems. It's a very, very good dimension, don't get me wrong. But he doesn't really do anything different. He, he, hits, he hits to a length, and he doesn't miss. And he serves pretty big. I was just saying, to ca- I've seen matches where he has made quite dramatic changes, particularly against Rafa and Novak. That US Open final against Rafa, you know, he completely changed his tactics to do that. And there's that one against Novak in Cincinnati, but, was it? Where he we, started yeah. changing completely. But, so he has shown that before, but I agree but with we, you generally. We, like, his game is pretty... You know, I'm gonna yeah, we did say that. Though. My, mate, my mate said that is the only thing he's ever seen him do differently is that when he's losing, he sometimes just starts whacking second serves, like it's as hard <laughs> as first serves, and that's it. And then against Rafa, he came to the net a bit more. But you know, these are not like you know. Yeah, of course, you're gonna do a couple of things differently. But this is not that they talk about him like he's some sort of like chess master on a on a tennis court. You know, it's like he's pretty. Uh, it's pretty obvious what he does. Um, and he does it very, very, very well. And it's tough to beat if, if you if you're five percent off on your game because you're going to have to hit clean winners from length balls, which I've said before is is tough. Is he George as good as you know the the, the other people, the team and Zverev and like the, that little? He's in that little group, isn't he? Where do you kind of put him in that group? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he will win a few majors. I think I think we've kind of said before. It's, there's a group of them I see winning maybe two or three. I mm. think I'd put him in that category. Um, but he doesn't stand out as one who who might end up dominating them. I think there are. And I'm, yeah, maybe I'm wrong, but I think there are better players coming through. Like I think mm. someone like Sinner has a potential to win a lot of slams if he kind of carries on the rate he's going. I think. There'll be a lot more opportunities and spread out chances, but Medvedev is likely to see three more years of Novak. So yeah. that that's someone who, to me, doesn't really match up well on his best surface. Um, mm. Whereas someone like Team, once Nadal's gone, should get three French Opens in theory, age-wise. Yeah. Like I think that's his best surface, and he still then can win in Australia and the US as well, potentially. I don't see Medvedev winning a non-hardcore Grand Slam, and Novak will be around longer than Rafa, I would guess. So, yeah, three, maybe two. Just Bournemouth because of timing. Um, over the other side of the net, uh, Alexander Zverev had a good week on the court, that is. Um, he got to the final, and, and as Callum said, played well for the best part of an hour, but ended up losing. I think he lost the third set 6-1, so it went away a bit. Um, but most of the talking was done about his own talking, Afterwards, um, we know that there were some allegations. We talked about them at length last week. Um, made against him regarding or well, of domestic abuse. Quite simply, um, I would urge everyone to read um, Ollie's story, uh, written by Ben Rothenberg in Racket Magazine. I'm sure if you go to any of our Twitter feeds, you'll see it there. Um, it's compelling. It's very readable. Um, it's a very interesting story for a number of reasons. It's quite graphic. I, should, I was actually I almost messaged Ben and said you should probably put a bit of a like a trigger you know, one. A, yeah, exactly. Cause it, it is, you know, and we, I should say that it's got some quite graphic descriptions of quite serious abuse allegations in there, which, you know, could be quite troubling. Um, and, you know, obviously because of the age we live in, it's become an absolute social media has just turned into an absolute animalistic cage over it. But I don't think Zverev has done himself any favors when he has been interviewed on the court 
Uh, afterwards, he has been asked various questions, like a normal tennis press conference. And then he kind of gratuitously says, oh, and one last thing. You know, there are people out there trying to wipe the smile off my face. Believe me, behind this mask, I'm smiling. You know, I've got the people I love around me. You know, it was a, okay, you could call it fighting talk if you wanted to give him some, some credit, which we have to try and do in the interest of balance. But realistically, it was an unnecessary way to hit back at people who are really just standing up for someone who they also think has been wronged. George? Yeah, I think this is such a difficult one in terms of like allegations you know she's not going to press charges and stuff so in terms of this guy having like a criminal conviction about this is probably not going to happen um it's really important that women are able to come forward with their accounts on these things um like and i don't think it's helpful for zverev to be coming out and almost suggesting it's kind of like a conspiracy against him um and that people are trying to drag him down that's not what's happening to my mind um and to even suggest it but i think to suggest it publicly is really poor it does kind of lend itself to quite an interesting sporting psychology point about i always call it the Mourinho philosophy to a degree the kind of idea that the entire world's against you i don't want to boil down using really serious allegations or something against you but it but it is quite an interesting general viewpoint kind of looking at where athletes go with this uh, i mean we've spoken sometimes about players who have things going on off the court and zverev has had this before you know last year his form kind of went to pot over off court stuff you know where he was breaking up with his girlfriend had some stuff going on with his agent and that really really affected his tennis this time it hasn't and it i don't i, it, I just find it quite interesting how he's dealing with this a lot better I mean, you mentioned that psychology. I think it's pretty powerful. I mean, Calvin, I'm sure you have seen it at every level and in different ways, but I think we can all name countless sportsmen and, and managers and sportswomen who who use that perception that the world is against them. It's an incredibly powerful driver, isn't it? Yeah, it can be, um, for sure. I mean, I think with Zverev, though, it's this is just happening too often now, isn't it, since the sort of... Even just this year, since we started in COVID, these sort of instances keep on happening. He keeps revealing himself to be what he really is. And, you know, it's he, he can't just keep on making out that it's people having allegations against him. These Most of these things seem to be backed up with pretty solid evidence that were from the, the, the videos when he was partying during lockdown and that kind of thing, and then how he's behaved since then. Um and I, I can just imagine, I noticed he got, I think it was you sent us a message the other day, James, didn't you, that he got a new PR agency. Mm. Um, and I can just imagine them pulling their hair out and stuff like that at the end of the match. Because I, I, I know people who work in that sort of realm and they'd just be furious that, that he's come and done that. And what, what was most bizarre is that he brought it about himself. He wasn't even asked about it. He just sort no, of, he, he started talking about it. Completely self-inflicted. Yeah, he, he's brought on board a... And credits of Ben Rothenberg, who pointed out in his piece, he's got a, a crisis comms PR agency working for him. I think they're called Reba Reba. I can't quite remember the name. I'm sure they don't need the publicity. But yeah, it's it's what people do when they get in trouble. They they hire a, a specific yeah. agency whose job is to basically fight fire. And it's not a great look when that's publicly available information. Look, maybe he's done his best to keep that quiet and Ben's done a bit of good snooping and, and managed to find it out. But 
yeah, as you say, it does keep happening to Alexander Zverev. Um, I mean, I can, I can I can sort of imagine the PR company thinking that you, you know, pretty, pretty, you know, from from a week ago, we've not had a bad week here. It, it sort of calmed down a bit. He's had a good week on the court. He's given an interview here and given a speech, and like we've managed to sort of get away relatively scot free. And then he starts talking about himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've sort of you've just popped the cork on the champagne at you know Reba HQ and gone. Oh, we got a oh wait no Sasha should Sasha. Stop talking. Stop. <laughs> yeah, oh no! It's but, almost yeah. like the um, you know, the guy who does the he does the politics ones, doesn't he? The um, the, the um, Michael Spicer. So <laughs> you can imagine like them doing one with the Sasha Zverev. And, like, That's the Michael Spicer we want to see in the yeah. other room with Mike with Alexander yeah. Zverev cranky. Yeah. Oh well, let's move on because uh, we did talk about it a lot last week, and and as I say, please do go and read Ben's piece. It's a really important um, piece of journalism, and it's a, a powerful story. And as George says, it's really important that survivors are able to come forward and, and tell their story and, and be believed. Um, George, you've written something here about um, one of Zverev's wins coming over Nadal, because we have to talk about tennis because he had a big week. Beating Nadal indoors on hard courts, a, a superb achievement or just a thing that top players can do? Yeah, I think the latter. Um, I think I'm right in saying Nadal's won one indoor title. Um, he often, I mean, so... He often, if I think about when the big indoor hardcore tournaments are, it's usually at a time of year when he's stripping back his schedule, so to speak. You know, the September, November, September, October, November, he's usually already injured or in the process of pulling out the ATP World Tour finals. So there's a kind of caveat there. But yeah, I don't think you're that wrong. I can't imagine he's got a great record on hardcore yeah. indoors. I think he's won Madrid. Uh... I mean, it's, a, it's fun, funnily enough, I was having a chat with someone else the other day. This is slightly off topic, but just quite, quite interesting that we were kind of having this conversation this week around um, Nadal reaching a thousand wins. Um, and the person I was talking to kind of said he would never have reached a thousand wins if uh, carpet hadn't been removed as a surface. And <laughs> <laughs> that really did make me laugh. Like, just quite a... Uh, a funny idea that because I mean, if you look at Nadal's record on carpet, it's even worse than it is indoor hard. Um, I am just looking at it. It's eight and eight <laughs> on carpet. Yeah. But when was I mean, the last time there was a carpet tournament? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about like two thousand and five or something. Well, his right, last yeah. carpet tournament was two thousand four, and he lost think, to Rainer Schutler in uh, uh, Basel. Actually, okay. I think the last carpet match came in two thousand and eight, but Nadal didn't play on it from two thousand and five, which kind of just shows okay. you how much disdain he had to that surface yeah. um, I mean I've never I'm, maybe I have played on carpet but I don't ever remember playing on carpet um, very so popular probably... at David Lloyd oh really that's where I play on it I quite like it but what's it, it, like, what's it like as a surface what's different about it it's um, rapid very yeah fast. it's quick but it so I, again I I quite like playing on it because under my knees it doesn't feel too bad. But I believe I'm right in saying that a lot of people twist their ankles on it um, and have a lot of problems that way. And that's kind of why it was removed in the end, that players were worried about getting injured on it. Um, it's also but, not very... It's, it's tough to... For, for clubs, it, it wears down very fast. So if you, if you have it on an indoor court, you're probably getting three or four years out of it at the most, and then you've got to have it laid again. There's, a, there's an excellent piece, actually, that Stu Fraser did... Um, Oh, during 
lockdown. Um, I spoke to him about it this week just because I was a bit interested in carpet, and he was saying, "Yeah, I was running out of things to write about during this period." But um, <laughs> it was it was kind of a look back at the carpet, um, the carpet days, if you like. It's a really really fun article um, if you've got a time subscription. Um, and he uh, he he was saying in the article that there's quite a strong group of people who including i think ken skupski was one of the people he was talking to right who were desperate for carpet to come back but what the nugget i really liked from the article was that the carpet i think it was joe jury kind of saying this that back in the day the carpets used to be moved from one tournament to the next so they'd literally roll up the carpet up. and it would go with the players <laughs> wow. to the next tournament um i just thought that was so so interesting but i mean they sometimes say, say to criticism oh, i bet you wish you could roll this pitch up and take it with you i mean they were literally doing that for some players that's fabulous um yeah maybe something best consigned to the past but you know it's funny to think that things like that were happening in tennis you know only 15 years ago you know when guys I mean, were playing now were still playing um, i mean it's probably the fast it was fa- the fastest surface other than and this one went out sort of mid-90s, but they used to play some tournaments on, remember the old gym floors, the, the, mm. the, vanished, the vanished wood. Yeah. Oh, really? I wouldn't like to play yeah. on that. If you fell yeah. over on that, I'd bloody kill them. I mean, you can imagine <laughs> playing someone with a big serve on that. <laughs> well, you weren't <laughs> playing them, were you? So you yeah. Watching. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, on um, just on Zverev and Nadal, James, uh, it, I, I, I keep on saying it that I wouldn't say it's, Nadal's kryptonite by any stretch, but the players who have the best chance of beating him are tall players with good backhands. Mm. And Zverev's certainly one of those. It, it negates, on surfaces other than clay, it negates Nadal's best shot. He likes to whip it up high to backhands. And players like Zverev, um, I mean, Djokovic is fairly tall uh, by sort of normal standards. Murray, um, they're, they're the ones who, aside from Federer with the one-hander, they're the ones who, who will give him the most challenge. They're also very, very good tennis players as well, which helps. Mm. <laughs> it always does. Um, speaking yeah. of very, very good tennis players, um, we kind of pre- sort of prefaced the Nadal thousand wins a little bit, but um, it's obviously a terrific achievement. There was a picture of him with a trophy in the shape of a thousand, if we can pop that in our weird trophies chat today. Um, and it is a terrific achievement. He's only lost 201 matches um, for the cost of his... 1,000 wins. I think he's now third on the all-time list. Of fourth, fourth, I think. Beg your pardon. So he's behind Federer, Jimmy Connors, and... Your favourite player, Ivan Lendl. Oh, even Lendl. Yeah, the <laughs> black cat bullet. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, he's, he's still, I mean, staggeringly, 236 wins uh, behind Roger Federer. Now, will he surpass that mark? Because I think probably the average year Nadal wins 60-odd matches. I think that's a reasonable kind of... Is that about the right number, George? It, yeah, I mean, I had a quick look at this. So it, it, it does vary. Back in the day, it was around the 90 mark when he was first coming through. So he's obviously not going at that efficiency now. I think him and Djokovic, you're looking around somewhere between 40 and 65 year, wins a year in, mm. in the kind of current day. I mean, at, the, at, that, at that rate... If Federer retires tomorrow, Nadal still has to play four more seasons, which is not impossible. But, you know, he still has to go well into his late 30s to get close. I mean, is that, is that realistic for him to get 1,236 wins? Four years of a full, four full seasons, Calvin? 
I don't personally see. No, I don't think he's breaking that because he doesn't. He also doesn't play loads of tournaments anymore, mm. um, and he tends not to win so much on the indoors, like we've just said. Um, yeah. And he'd have to do that every season for the next four seasons. Um, mm. I, I failed to see him doing that uh, in sort of 2024, still churning out 60 wins a year. I just just don't see it. And, and if he is, then the younger players really need to have a look at themselves. <laughs> uh, Djokovic, meanwhile, is uh, 68 back behind Nadal, so sort of one year and a bit, um, and five years, if you like, behind Federer. I mean, he, I know we talked last week about him starting to strip back his schedule a little bit just to protect his molecules or his elbow or his shoulder, whichever you fancy. Um, George, is that realistic for him? Do you, th- do you I mean, do you think Federer will, of the three will end up with the most wins? And does it matter to any of them? I, th- I think F- Federer will probably pass Connors as well, won't he, realistically? You'd have thought. Yeah, I think that's another thing like, that we've... 32 off or something. Yeah. I think that's another thing that we've got to take into this. I, I think Federer probably wins another 50, 60 matches in his career. Yeah, so, yeah the market's you know, not been set yet. Yeah, yeah, he's. Yeah, I'd be surprised if he doesn't play at least the full season next season, mm. um, and then maybe after, maybe next year will be his last year. But if he does, I imagine he'll. If it, whatever his last year is, injury permitting, I imagine he'll play a pretty full schedule because he'll yeah. want to go around all the spots. I, I'd say with Novak, I mean, it, to me anyway, it seems like he kind of sets his targets on a new record every few weeks <laughs> or like, <laughs> every time he ticks one off. So I think if he suddenly got the desire to be like, oh, I want the most match wins, then possibly he'd do that. But again, I think he'd be more interested in most titles and he's some way off that as well. But if he got his mind like, oh, I want the most titles because I've already got the most Grand Slams and I've already got you know the most weeks at world number one, then possibly by kind of just as a result of winning the most titles, maybe. But I, I, to be honest, I, I think Federer is going to finish top of that one, which um, I don't often say in the big three battles. <laughs> no. Um, he also, you mentioned kind of records that he's wrapped up and, and, and this week he wrapped up the year end number one. Is that right? Something right in saying? Um, yes. The oldest in history. Uh, yes. Equaling Sampras for six year end, year end number one finishes. I mean, I think if you had to choose who's just the greater achievement there, it's Djokovic, isn't it? Because you know, the competition that he's got around him rather than what Sampras had around him. Yeah. Um, Sampras did six in a row, which is pretty good. That's, mm. I don't think that will be beaten for some time. He wasn't maybe ever. continuously number one in between them, though, right? No, no. So he, I think he'll have had points in the season where he dropped off, but he's ended six seasons, number one in a row. I think I'm right in saying. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Novak finishing year and number one six times in the field he's had is pretty extraordinary and you have to think he'll do it next year or if not the year after mm. um the the oldest number one year and number one is quite a funny list it's Djokovic Nadal Djokovic Nadal as the top four because <laughs> <laughs> they've been alternating seasons they've been finishing number one and have been the oldest players to do it so yeah um, that that's quite a fun little list. So if one of them does it next year, then they'll own the top five between them. It's one of those stats that kind of feels irrelevant in some ways because, like, I, I always find it hard comparing gross stats between eras. And age is one of those that doesn't quite translate in the same way. 
You know, a 35-year-old in 2020 is so different from what a 35-year-old in 1985 looked like. Yeah, and between between Novak and Rafa, it's quite silly anyway, because actually Novak's one year behind him. So really, in terms of their age pattern, or, or, or like a couple of weeks behind him, so really, they've both had the same year. Their 33rd year has been number one. The only way Novak's above him is the fact that he's two weeks younger within that year. So <laughs> it, it's, it is really kind of pointless on that sort of thing. But mm. if he does it at 34, then I would say he's got it more outright than he does now. Mm. Um, it also means talking of rankings and points and uh, the point system that I can't understand this year. Uh, that the ATP finals, the final ATP finals in London, the lineup now uh, has been set. I think we were down to a basically a playoff between um, Diego Schwartzman and Matteo Berrettini. Uh, so just to run you through in seeding order, it will be Djokovic, Nadal, Dominic Team, Nadal, Medvedev, Alexander Zverev, Stefano Tsitsipas, Andrei Rublev, and Diego Schwartzman. Uh, the alternates are uh, and, and Matteo Berrettini and Denis Shapovalov, who could be in for the best paid week of their lives, given the amount of work they will not have to do. Um, <laughs> I know that we've given the point system some some stick this year, but that does feel like the top eight men's players in the world, Calvin, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd say so. I don't think anyone can really have any argument with that. Shapovalov had a good run. Um just coming out of lockdown, didn't he? But um, mm. has tapered off a bit since then. I thought he was going to get it, but then um, I, th- I think it's probably the first year that we can say. I think probably a pretty good tournament. It's a shame there will be no crowds there this year because yeah. I don't think there's anyone there you would say is is an easy draw uh, for any of the players. No, there's no there's no kind of whipping boy you would say. I mean. We've talked about what Diego Schwarzman is or isn't in a draw, but he's in good form. He's had a good yeah. for the season. Andre Rublev is the form player in world tennis this year. Um, I would argue. Uh, I think that's going to be an in- that's going to be interesting to see how that happens, pans out with Rublev because he's in phenomenal form, but hasn't really beaten any of those guys to get there. Mm. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how what he's playing like once they get there. I mean, is, is, is that likely to be a decent court for him, George? I mean, as Calvin says, and I pointed out last week, his titles haven't come against the best players. Will he match up well with any of them in particular in, in London? Um, I mean, it's a pretty quick court, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the quicker ones, I suppose. But um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's a bad court for him. I, I think, to be honest, he's playing pretty well on everything. I mean, he beat Sissipas, didn't he, in one of those finals. So that, that's yeah. one of the players he's, yeah. he, he has beaten. I, I don't think he'll be going into many of those matches with great fear at the minute. I don't, Zverev and Medvedev have kind of obviously reached the final in Paris this week. But Rafa, you'd fancy yourself against it. I think any of them will f- fancy giving Rafa a go on indoor hard. I don't, th- I don't think he... Because all those guys came through as juniors, Tsitsipas, uh, Zverev, um, Rublev. I don't think he's particularly bothered about playing them because they've played so many times and he, he was a very, very good junior. He'll have, you know, although we might not have the sort of win-loss records of them in juniors, um, I imagine he was pretty close with both of them. So he'll think he can beat them. Um, I still think the sort of Djokovic, Nadal might be the ones that there's still a bit of a stigma for him. I don't know if he's beaten either of them. Um, in his career, I don't think he has. He, no, he has. He definitely hasn't beaten Medvedev in seniors either, and yeah. I think he's got a losing record to him at challenges and futures level as well. Off the top yeah. of my head, I think I think Medvedev's got his number. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, look, he, he has to be confident at the minute. And I don't think he'll be coming in thinking, oh, I'm not beating any of these guys. It's a big issue for me. I think he'll be coming in being like, I've got the most titles here. I'm playing fantastically well. Why not? I deserve it. Um, mm. But And with that crowd there, you won't get overwhelmed as well. I mean, I think that's a good, that's quite a good thing for him, to be honest. He's probably glad that Dan Evans is not there. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's kind of, you mentioned the crowd actually, George, and I, uh, someone I was doing a bit of work on the golf earlier this week and Paul McGinley pointed out that the two major winners we've had in golf this year are both first-time winners, um, Colin Morikawa and Bryson DeChambeau. And the first thing Morikawa said when he got off the course was, God, it was so much easier trying to close out my first major with no one there. It kept the intensity level just manageable. Things didn't get out of hand. And actually... The ATP World Tour Finals, the crowd is generally pretty punchy. Mm, you know, I remember, yeah. I think, Goffin playing against Dimitrov a few years ago. It got extremely rowdy. And Dimitrov, you know, is a bit of a sort of purebred, thoroughbred racehorse at the best of times who can spook at anything. And I think there were lots of Belgians in, and it got really, really spicy. A lot of Bulgarians as well. They, they always There's quite a big contingency who come and support yeah. Dimitrov when he comes. Um, but yeah, I mean... Novak's had a few incidents there where someone from the crowd who's been a bit drunk in the boxes has kind of been calling Federer's name at him or whatever. You know, it can get a little bit noisy there. I, I think the the big thing this year is the lack of kind of playing time throughout the year. I think that really favours Novak now. I think beforehand, sometimes, I don't think he's necessarily leggy, that's probably the wrong word, but in terms of his year-long priorities, I don't think it was necessarily that high. Whereas I think this year he can equal Federer's number of wins there. Um, I, I just think he'll be quite up for it. And he, as he does with most tournaments, kind of seems to be the clear favourite for me. And having rested in Paris, I, I'd expect him to kind of really focus on this one. Mm, yeah, we'll um, wait to see the draw, I think, about later this week. Um, always quite intriguing. Obviously, Djokovic and Nadal can't be drawn together, but I think the rest of it is free choice, I think I'm right in saying. I think they're split, so you can only get one, so three and four are split, yeah. and yeah. five and six are split, seven and eight are split. So we know roughly who will be with who, or we know who can't play who so far. So we know I team think... can't play Medvedev, for example, yeah. in the group stages. Um, yeah. Makes sense. Um, we should, because we've been focused purely on either George's tennis or men's tennis um, this week, uh, give a shout-out to the women's tour. They're in the middle of their final tournament of the season uh, in Linz, which, of course, is famous. The, it's the grey indoor hardcore, isn't it? Um, Coco Goff's first. Coco Goff's first title against Lena Ostapenko. That'll be a quiz uh, not... question for years to come, that. Back yeah, very much. She's a star to one. be fair, Elena Ostapenko is my like go-to answer to any quiz question when it comes to his head because she's always there she's you know it doesn't matter what happened i'm convinced she was like there at the signing of the maastricht treaty and stuff because she's just always there um i'm trying to check if she's actually in linz this week i don't think she is um there's been a couple of shocks early daria yastremska was the number three seed she went out in straight sets um in the first round to someone i've never heard of uh, a belgian player called minnan well, Georgie, maybe I'll shed more light than me, but I certainly know that face suggests you can't. She's 110 in the world. I'd be impressed if you could name anything about her. Um, but yeah, that's obviously a weird end to the season because it's a month after the previous tournament and we haven't had WTA finals. 
I mean, I suppose it's kind of unavoidable in the circumstances. Is, is there anything that WTA could have done to, to make sure it wasn't this kind of damp squib sitting a month away from everything else? Yeah, I mean, we, we mentioned this a little bit the other week, didn't we, when we were talking about the kind of they needed a miracle for the WTA finals to be happening. I think there was enough kind of pressure from kind of China not to bother trying to find somewhere else to do that, to be honest. Uh, that's pretty much how it panned out. Um, other places they had looked at for other little tournaments. You know, it, it was kind of a bad, it's a bad time of year, isn't it? With kind of new spikes and countries kind of locking down and stuff. Um, it, it kind of just never really took off. Um, so I think they kind of were just taking stock more than anything. Um, mm. But yeah, losing the Chinese swing for the WTA was a complete disaster, to be honest. Like, And that, I'm not saying you shouldn't have all your end of season stuff in one area, but it, it, you know that they have been stung by that in these unique circumstances. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of one of. I mean, there have been plenty of unfortunate victims in the last twelve months, but that, that I suppose is one of them. Um, we talked a lot about Felix Alvarez-Sim at the end of this season, um, and he's one of the players. I mean, it's kind of that time of year when players do start to announce splits with coaches and things. Um, he's got rid of long-term coach Guillaume Marks, um, who is kind of a, he, you know, who, he's a, a, am I right in saying, Calvin, that he's one of the kind of in-house guys in the Canadian Tennis Federation, whichever, yeah, that's cool? He certainly was. Um, I don't know whether he'd sort of gone full-time with Felix. Um, he was until a couple of years ago. He'd worked with him for a long time. Um, so he's, he's one he of the one guys you've come up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he under, he's stuck with stuck with his other coach, but we think that there might be a, a new face coming in, which is, I mean, I, I don't want to go on about it because it's something we've discussed before, but with the kind of weird set of results he's had and the massive drop-off in form, it's no bad thing to have a, a fresh pair of eyes and a, a fresh face in the camp. It, it can make a, a minor but definitely a tangible difference um, to a player. Uh, he also picked up a, an ATP title this week for the first time, um, winning the doubles with Hubert Hukash, um, Hubi, I believe, to everyone uh, who knows him. Well, I don't. Um, but yeah, winning a, a pretty serious ATP title. They beat Bruno Suarez and Marit Mar- Pavic in the final, who are you know, not, to be, um, not to be sniffed at. Bruno Suarez is former world number one. George, is, it's a breakthrough, isn't it, of sorts? Yeah, well, I was, I was going to say, Dave, I think they took out four of the top eight seeds mm. on the way there. Um, Mello, Venus and Piers, all guys who've been yeah. world number one at one point. There's a bias Farah as well. Oh, yeah. they, they beat. Um, so, you know, in terms of when I, I, I wouldn't say I'm the ultimate doubles specialist in terms of when <laughs> I'm looking at the draws and stuff, but the, all the guys they've played this week are regulars at the ATP finals. Um, so it's, they're playing some of the best doubles guys in the world um, and going through to win it. I mean, a lot of them in kind of championship tie-break wins. I'm pretty sure actually all of them were <laughs> when I had a brief kind of cast over. So, you know, that is a little bit of a shootout, that kind of third set format. But, yeah, it's, it's great stuff. I, I, I don't know whether it has great significance towards his singles. I think it's good for him to play doubles, um, as some of, a lot of the young guys are doing, actually, to be fair. Um, that's always something I think is good for them to do. But... Yeah, it's nice to get a winning feeling on the tour, and who knows, maybe that will galvanise him next year because, as we said, he's dropped off a little bit at the end of the season. Yeah, Carl, and I remember people saying about Carl Edmund that he should go off and play a bit, play more doubles, you know, to sort of work on his touch around the net and things. And he's obviously got a game that's a little bit suited to it. 
Uh, is Felix one of those guys you would look at and think that he can benefit technically from doubles, or is this just about winning matches and being involved later in tournaments? Uh, he's always played quite a bit of doubles anyway. Um, mm. I've seen his name pop up a lot. Um, and, he, you know, he sometimes makes a lot of stages. Uh, but he's, and he, he already is a, a, an all-court player anyway, I'd say. Um, yeah. Kyle, Kyle's a bit different uh, just because the way he plays. Um, but Felix is sort of, I guess, is more suited to doubles. But uh, the thing is with doubles, it will always develop your game because just it, it, it's sort of a different way of looking at it. Uh, and you have to be more adaptable. Um, but in terms of him winning that, um, the thing with doubles these days, if you've got if you've got two guys with decent weapons, then anything can happen because it's sudden death juice and a champion's tiebreak. Yeah, you basically have to win a set and a tiebreak to win a match. Um, <laughs> and, and with sudden death juice, you know, it's, you'll probably get on average in a set, you'll probably get four games that go to juice. Um, and there was a, there was a guy here. Uh, I'm in Greece now, and he was saying last week that he'd played. Um, it, he, that he'd actually played. They have a wild card playoff tournament here with sudden death mm. juice, and he's saying he lost a set. Um, he lost a set six love, and there were five sudden death juice games in that in that set. Um, which you know you just look at it and you think it's a terrible loss, but um, it, or, or the set was bad, but. You know, and that's that's the sort of thing that can happen in doubles. Um, yeah, that's, that's why. I, I kind of get the sudden death juice thing. It, it, I remember when ATP finals actually about four years ago, they were using it, and it it definitely caught me off guard once or twice because partly because it was doubles and I was kind of just caught side almost just for somewhere to be, <laughs> and you know it would go to juice and then a point would happen. I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, here we go, game point, and they're sitting down, and I would get quite caught out by it. Um, but yeah. yeah, you mentioned the, the Champions tiebreak as well, George, you're right. Um, in that doubles run in Paris, uh, Hubi and Felix won five matches. Four of them came via the Champions tiebreak going to a set all. It does sort of turn things into a little bit more of a coin flip. But uh, if they want you're doubles to, to be more entertaining and more players to play it, they've got to make it shorter, haven't they? You, you, you see these sort of things in doubles though regularly, I think, but um, where the guys who are the seeds, the top seeds, hardly ever win the tournaments. Like <laughs> I was saying, I was saying to someone the other day that like Cabal and Farrow are the world number ones, and I never see them in finals. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's just bizarre. And I get that, you know, with the ranking system as it is this year, they're defending a lot of points from. They've not gone down the rankings, mm. but but whenever we see the finals of it, I'm like, well, you know, Cabal and Farrow are actually any good. <laughs> they all seem to be losing earlier. They obviously are very, very good. But I think it's more the doubles ranking goes on like how, which is how ranking should be, how you work over a year. You you get these sort of random winners in tournaments a lot of the time. I, I The thing that stands out to me about doubles um, was when obviously Murray came back and won that tournament with Feliciano Lopez. Yeah. And he, <laughs> we were kind of asking him, or some of the journalists were asking him about certain shots he'd made at certain points of the matches, you know, that they want to kind of pin as a, like a, a big shot. And one of them, I believe, I think was like a backhand return winner from Murray. And I'll never forget his answer because he was just basically like, yeah, it was a good shot, but that equally could have been a really, really crap shot if just the doubles guy net had gone the other way. <laughs> like <laughs> it is just such kind of fine margins in doubles and you can hit the same shot and it, totally depends on what's happening on the other side of the net, which is completely different to singles, I think. Um, so The thing is, that, 
Sorry, George. The, th- the thing is with with doubles, and I've sort of we have obviously Louis Kaye in this country, who's regarded as the best doubles coach in the world. And if, if you watch him work, and I've done a fair few courses with him over over the years, and he sort of explains how doubles is a lot more of a, a sort of science than singles. It's it's easier to predict. It's very much like if you do this, then your opponent only has these two options, and if you do this, then they'll do this that type of thing, and that's how he very much works. You can't do that in singles. There's too many different variables. Um, and that's basically how he developed all the British players with sort of set tactical patterns. Yeah, well, I can't can't disagree, really. I mean, I'm famously a terrible doubles player because I have... Like, <laughs> oh, but a great singles player. <laughs> oh, well, look, I wasn't going to comment on my singles game. Um, just, just that I'm too angry a player to really play doubles well because I can't really talk team points because I'm too pissed off with what I've just done. Um, I just very finally wanted to come on because um, I spent a bit of time on Zoom um, with Mr. Dan Evans this morning um, on a project which is embargoed for a couple of weeks. I can't really talk about, but it's reasonably exciting for when it comes out. But um, it was kind of uh, good to chat to him about his season. And I, I was quite frank with him, really. I, I said what we said a couple of times, which is I said to him, well, I think you could be sitting here with three trophies, mate. Like, we <laughs> very nearly were there, which he um, took well, as you can imagine. Um, but he... <laughs> He, he did, you know, he was pretty honest and said, "Yeah, I probably should have won in Antwerp. That was that was there to to be taken." And and he, he I think he thinks he got pretty unlucky uh, over the last half of the season, drawing Stamford Rinker a few too many times. He's pretty clear about that. Um, but what I thought was quite interesting was we, we were talking about Australia, and he's obviously heading down there, and he's going to be working with Craig Johnson, who's based in Australia, and he's kind of mapped out his his schedule already and says that he's not going to play the week before the Australian Open, which is something that he's done before and, and says he's not felt very fresh um, going in. And, you know, he said it wasn't about conditioning, which I know, well, Tim Henman's had a pop at him about that before and a few other people. He said, oh, I think I'm very fit. I think it's a problem. But I think he just wants to be a bit more savvy. You know, he's, he's going to have to work hard to get into the second week of a Grand Slam if he, if he wants to do that. And if you're going in having played three or four matches within a couple of days of, of a Grand Slam, then I don't think you're really in the best shape to do that, which it was kind of quite hard to argue with, Calvin. I guess, you know, that sort of boxing clever and management of your schedule is just important as the actual tennis you play sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, that, that week before Slam is always a tricky one uh, because you don't want to lose, but it's probably ideal for you if you kind of make quarterfinals and then you're out. Mm. Um, but it's especially difficult for the guys... I guess Dan's now gone up a bit, but it, it's especially difficult for the guys who are kind of ranked about sort of 40 to 60 because they're not getting seeded. So it, it's difficult to say that they're focusing on the slams because they could go and draw Djokovic in the first round. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it sort of peels away. But I think now now that Dan get, probably gets seeded, I think, will he? Is he uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, he, you know, he knows he's going to have two matches against people who are ranked below him to start with. Um, so probably, you know, well, it, it does make a lot of sense to not play that in those circumstances, I'd say. I, I was just uh, thinking about players because most of the top guys don't really like playing the week before slams. Um, one who sticks out to me who does or at least typically has in the past is Vavrinka in Geneva, head of the French Open. That's one tournament he always goes to. Oh. And I was just thinking in my head did he play that 
the year before he won the French Open. And a quick Google has confirmed he did. And to Calvin's motto, he lost in the quarterfinals. So, <laughs> there you go. Proving the theory <laughs> to be totally correct. It reminds the thing me is, the, sorry, James, go on. Go on, no, go, Calvin. No, I think the thing is, it, it's always interesting around tournaments because players like to train and they like to practice. And, you know, it's something that I discuss with the players I work with a lot. It, it's, it's sort of like, are, are you better off just playing matches? Because realistically, you know, you're going to train. The week before, you're probably going to train sort of two to three hours a day anyway. So if it's just a match that you're going to play, it's not a whole lot. In terms of actual load on the body, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. It's, I think the problem then comes is if you're on the sort of Saturday before the slam starts and you've got semi and then you've got final and then you've got to move move on from there and that then because then you you wouldn't train for that much on those days if that makes sense mm, mm. that would be when you'd taper that does make sense it's funny that that losing in the quarterfinals thing it reminds me of a very good cricketer I used to play with and that each year we play a ceremonial game against the school first 11 um, and we play for the staff team and Bryn Lockie was an absolute king of coming out to bat at number three, because we always batted first, um, making a very attractive 35, and then just getting out before lunch so that he'd go in and have <laughs> two portions of lasagna without having to go out and bat again after lunch. It was absolutely masterful. Um, I think on that note, we might leave it there, uh, because it's getting late, uh, and it's getting even later in Heraklion for you, Calvin. Thank you again for, yeah, no for tuning in from abroad, our, our, our foreign correspondent. Uh, George will be back next week, although... With not a huge amount to talk about, although we will have the ATP draw, and you will, of course, be live from the O2 Arena, or will they have kicked you out by 9 o'clock at night? <laughs> um, I am probably debating. I'll, pro- I'll probably come home and do the podcast from home. I'll probably go for the day session on Monday, and then come home for the evening. Depends what the match is, of course, but that, yes. that is how I'm planning it now. Is it still yeah. starting on the Sunday this year, or is it Monday? It, yeah, it is, on the, it is a Sunday start. Um, okay. I think I think they're normally like, I think I'm right in saying that the top players who could play each other wouldn't be playing each other on the first days anyway. So it's quite likely it'll yeah. be like a Djokovic, Schwartzman first round, which yeah. is, I will watch and cover, but I, I think it'll, I don't need to be there so much, if mm. that makes sense. And if you're in Britain, uh, you'll be able to watch it um, on the BBC, certainly large parts of it. Um, yeah, you get one match a day on the BBC and the rest on it's Amazon. Pretty- Pretty good for lockdown, really. Uh, right, Jess. Yeah. Well, I'll see you next week. Cheers, lads. Yeah, cheers, guys. Bye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.